Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. We are in a sermon series on seeking and enjoying God. Uh, When you're actively enjoying your relationship with somebody... All sorts of conflicts and challenges become easier. Uh, And Jesus offers us a relationship with God full of delight and rejoicing. So we're asking, how do we seek and enjoy God? And we're looking uh, at seven Christian practices that have historically also been elements of Christian worship. So praise, confession, uh, preaching, giving, offering, uh, prayer, communion, benediction. And we're looking at how practicing these habits help us seek and enjoy God. In other words, we're looking at how these habits can transform our lives. So today's passage, Psalm 32 by King David, is about forgiveness, which corresponds to the practice of confession. Now, some people get tripped up on confession for at least two reasons. So first... A lot of people hear confession, and what they think about is talking to a Catholic priest in a booth, and if you don't, you aren't forgiven. And that's not what we're talking about. Um, I don't want to hate on that, but that's not necessarily biblical confession. Confession with repentance is going before God in prayer, acknowledging our sin, and turning away. And James, the book of James says, to confess our sins one to another. Right. So confession can also refers to the ways that brothers and sisters hold each other accountable. Right. In our struggle with sin. So that's the first reason, you know, some of us balk. Uh, The second reason we get tripped up is we just don't grasp the joy that's available to us from confession. Now, all around the world, if you talk about God's forgiveness, you'll find people who will say, I know God forgives me but I can't forgive myself, right? Or I've heard non-Christians say, that's nice uh, that God would forgive me, but what do I do about my own lack of forgiveness? That's the problem. And let me say, if that resonates with you at all, it's because you don't understand God's forgiveness. Because if we really understood and enjoyed God's forgiveness, we would not worry about whether we have forgiven ourselves. If we seek and enjoy God's forgiveness, that will radically transform our lives, both how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to others. So we're going to look at three things to get the joy of forgiveness. What we need to do, 
why we don't do it and how we can. So what we need to do, why we don't do it and how we can. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that you would open this passage up to us. God, soften our hearts to receive your truth. God, that we would seek you and enjoy you and delight in you with all of our beings. May your words be sweeter than honey um, on our lips. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so first, what we need to do. Now, throughout the psalm, David uses three different words to talk about the bad stuff that needs forgiveness. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. Now, in church, we talk a lot about sin. uh, And so we can use that as a catch-all to mean sort of like all the bad stuff. Um, And, you know, I mean, when is the last time that you used the word transgression or iniquity in a sentence? Just sort of, you know, walking along. Um, Well, in Hebrew thought, these words are all related, but they aren't just synonyms. They're not the same three words. And the way the Bible uses these three terms tells us a lot about what God thinks is wrong with us. So, what's wrong with us? So, first, there's the problem of transgression. Transgression means breaking trust or rebellion. So, to transgress is to do something that you promise not to do. It's to violate the trust of others. It's to break a relationship. So, for example, if a stranger steals from you, that's robbery. But if your neighbor, whom you know, whom you should trust be able to trust. If they steal from you, that's a transgression because you should be able to trust your neighbor. And in the Bible, there ought to be a universal trust among all humanity because all humanity is made in God's image. We share that. And so mistreatment of others is a betrayal of our shared humanity, of our shared image of God in one another. And most importantly, Our misbehavior is a violation of our relationship with God. So, as an example, in our first act of rebellion in the Garden of Eden, we ate from the tree because we decided we cannot trust God to be God. We want to be God. We can't let God be God. Right? Transgression. So, what's wrong with us is we violate and rebel against our shared humanity and against our relationship with God. Second, iniquity. Iniquity means behavior that is twisted or crooked. So it's something that's supposed to be straight, but it's been bent out of shape or distorted. So and interestingly, the word iniquity is uh, it's morally distorted behavior, but it's also the consequences of that behavior. It's all the consequences of that behavior for broken relationships and social breakdown. So the consequence of our distorted morality is a twisted and crooked world, right? Iniquity is its own punishment. The Bible often talks about bearing one's own iniquity because the result of iniquity is iniquity, twisted, crooked world. So what's wrong with us is that our behavior and thoughts can be distorted and twisted and crooked, and so is the world as a result, and finally, sin. Right? We say, oh, we know, we are, that's the one we're forget, familiar with. Sin literally means to miss the mark. So it's like to throw a stone and to miss the target. Sin is to fail to be truly human. It's to fail to live as image bearers of God and f- to fail to love God and to love others. 
as we were created to do. And because the Bible teaches that we were created with a purpose, our purpose is to love God and to love others. So when we sin, we fail to be truly human. Sin, so sin, sin refers to that failure, but it also refers to our self-deception when we think we're not failing. Because most of the time when we fail to be truly human, we think we're doing a good job. Right? We may think we're succeeding and we don't even realize we're failing. Right? So, right, you can probably see this in people around you. Right? You look and you see they're making a disaster of their lives, but they think they're doing great. Um, or if you look at a younger version of yourself, right, and things that you thought, oh, man, this is the way to go. And you look back now and you're like, what was I thinking? Right? We deceive ourselves. So sin is failure. It's missing the mark. It's self-deception. But it's also... It's not only that, it's also a power. It's, sin is like a ravenous animal that wants to consume us, right? Or a dark spiritual power that controls us. Um, so what's wrong with us is we fail to love God and to love others, which is what we were meant to be, which what it means to be human. And we deceive ourselves that we're fine. And all the while, there's this power that controls us and keeps us from being truly human. Okay, why am I spending so much time on this? Because I want you to see, I mean, because the Bible wants you to see that we humans have a profound and complex problem. We break trust, we act crookedly, we miss the, the mark in thought, in words, in deeds, in how we treat others, in how we treat God. Right, some of us wrongly think that Christianity is about like good things outweighing bad things, right? Um, but that's just flat out wrong. Our problem runs much, much deeper. We are radically corrupted to the very core of us. And it shows up in many ways. Right? So, one thing, this means the world is not cleanly separated into good people and bad people. Right? So, one person famously said, the battle line between good and evil runs through every human heart. So, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was imprisoned in a Soviet gulag. He was in right, terrible, terrible conditions. And so he would fantasize about switching roles with the guards. Right? They'd be in the pit and he'd be the one with the guns. And what, he, what happened, he was shocked by what happened as he did this. He found himself in his mind treating the guards exactly the way that they were treating him. And he realized he was absolutely no better than they were. Right? He had to battle good and evil in his heart just as much as they did. The only difference was they were up there with the guns and he was in the pit. So there aren't good and bad people. But it also, within each person, we can't neatly categorize any of our thoughts or behaviors into good or bad. Right? Because even our good deeds can be tainted by mistrust of God or our fear of what others think. Right. Or our desire to look good or something else equally self-centered. Right. We can do good things for not good reasons. So something is wrong with us and we need forgiveness. So in verse five, David says, if we confess our sins, if we acknowledge our iniquity, right, if we acknowledge that something is wrong with us and that we miss the mark, God forgives us. So he says, 
I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then in verse 6, David tells us that we should do the same and that we should be proactive and intentional about it. So let's unpack what this means a little bit more. Uh, Two things to point out. So first, how often do you confess to somebody that you messed up and somebody will, will respond with, don't worry about it or no big deal, right? Um, right? And sometimes that's because the thing that we're confessing is no big deal. But often we say that because, frankly, we don't have the guts to really say, I forgive you. Because forgiveness means two things. You did do wrong. It is a big deal. But I won't hold it against you. I mean, if it's not a big deal, there's nothing to forgive. Forgiveness means you screwed up, but I won't hold it against you. So forgiveness declares that somebody did wrong and that somebody needs forgiveness. You owe me a debt, but I won't make you pay. You hurt me, but I'll bear the cost. You broke trust, but I won't count it against you. I'll work to rebuild the relationship with you. God doesn't say, no big deal. God says, I will not count this against you. I'll cover this. Second, God's forgiveness is a gift that leads to blessing and rejoicing. So in verse 1 and 2, David says, blessed is the forgiven. Right? And then in verse 11, at the end, he says, be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Shout for joy. Why? Because the end of confession is joy and praise. Because God's forgiveness leads us to rejoice. And that's crucial because you can look at verses 3 and 4, right, where he's talking about God's hand being heavy upon me. And you can wonder, well, if God wants us to shout for joy, why does he insist that we confess? Well, David says that God's hand was heavy upon him and that his strength was dried up and his bones wasted away. And, you know, look, confession is not some grumpy thing that God asks of us. God makes us feel the consequences of our sin and the consequences of our holding it in because God wants us to receive the joy available to us from his forgiveness. So that's what we need to do. We need to acknowledge the ways we fail to live according to God's plan for us to love God and to love others. The ways that our thoughts and our actions are twisted and crooked And the ways that we break trust with humanity and fail to trust God. Okay, but second, we don't do this. Why? Well, you know, confession is hard or even uncomfortable. Uh, First, we might think, I'm a Christian. I understand the gospel. I understand forgiveness. So I don't need to confess in order to be forgiven. I'm, I'm forgiven in Christ. True, but not quite, because we actually rob ourselves of receiving that forgiveness. Here's an illustration. A friend of mine was telling me that counseling is sort of like this. Um, Somebody walks into your office and they have a nail in their head, um, you know, big, like foot long nail, and they're complaining of a headache. And uh, your job as a counselor apparently is not to tell them, so do you think the headache might be caused by the nail in your head? which is, you know, my instinct. 
Um, but apparently your job is to come alongside them and to listen and to get them on their own to say, you know, I hadn't thought about it before, but I wonder if the pain in my head might be caused by this nail. Right? And they say, yeah, maybe. I wonder if we should deal with that. Right? That's a good observation. Now, this isn't a perfect analogy, but look, many, many of our problems in life, they come from our sin. They come from our iniquity. They come from our transgression. And, right, you might say, what about other people causing problems? Right? What about the things people do to us? Yes, but some of our pain is about how we react. It's the bitterness we hold on to. It's our resentment. It's our lack of forgiveness. And if we're unwilling to go before God and confess our sin, we're like somebody with a nail in their head who says, this is not the problem. I don't need to deal with this. I have this sin in my life. I don't need to, I don't need to bring that to God. It's, it'll just take care of itself. It won't. And notice, David says to offer up prayers, right? So this is all about confession, right? So he's saying he's talking about confession of sin before the waters begin to come up. I mean, that's weird, right? What's going on? Well, in the Bible, rising waters represent chaos and danger. So in this context, our sin will rise up against us. But if we proactively confess our sin to God before our sin starts to overwhelm us, then God will deliver us. So confession is a grace. It's not grumpy. It's a grace. The more we actively confess our sins... The more we actively receive that forgiveness, the more we will understand rightly who God is and who we are in him. Confession is a tool by which we receive that joy. Now, I think more often we fail to do confession because we're actively opposed to it. Right? It's not just that we don't see the need. We don't want to do it. And there are at least two deadly false beliefs that keep us from truly confessing our sin as a way of seeking and enjoying God. So first, confession requires being honest about the ugliness we see in ourselves. And who wants to do that? Right? Why would we be willing to look into the depths of our hearts and dig up all the dirt and darkness we see? Well, if we don't, believe that our standing with God depends on being morally good, then who cares? Right? But that's the problem. Many of us, too many of us, are moralistic and we find our identity in being good. Right? We think God loves us because we're good people. Or we think God owes us because we're good people. Right? But, you know, the... the the sound effects, that's not Christianity, right? That's not Christianity. If, you, if that's what you believe about God, that will suck all the joy out of following God. Because to you, if that's what you believe, God's forgiveness isn't a gift. It's something God owes you, right? You've done your part. God must do this for you. But joy comes from knowing that a debt has been paid and you rejoice that God has paid it for you. But if you're moralistic, if God owes you a good life, then you rejoice in yourself. Right? If you are your own savior, and that's what it means when you say, I'm good enough, then God hasn't done anything for you to rejoice in. 
And you will not seek God. You will not love God because ultimately your relationship with God is transactional. You do your part. He does his, which means you're failing to love God and to trust God and you don't even know it. There's another reason you won't have joy in life if you think that your standing depends on being good. You aren't. You aren't good. Despite your best deceptions, you will recognize the crookedness and the treachery in your heart. And then, what do you do? I'll tell you what you do. You cover. All right, that's what David says here. He says in verses 3 and 4, he kept silent. He avoided confessing his sins and his bones wasted away. But in verse 5, he says he acknowledged sin and he did not cover his iniquity. He had been covering his iniquity, but he stopped. He stopped deceiving himself. When our lives depend on being good enough, we must deceive ourselves when we don't measure up. So what does this look like? Do you remember... uh, After Adam and Eve eat the fruit, for the first time they become ashamed of their nakedness and they take fig leaves to cover themselves. So you've seen pictures, right? Like little tiny, right? Right? They suddenly know something is wrong with us, but the fig leaves don't fix the problem. Look, we are naked. When God looks at us, he sees everything that we should be ashamed of. He sees our manipulation. He sees our gossip. He sees our materialism. He sees our selfishness. He sees the way we use others and demonize others and dehumanize others. We need to be covered, but our fig leaves won't do it. We can deceive ourselves by saying, oh, I'm not materialistic. I just value comfort or I just need to be a good steward. That's why I have all this stuff. I don't have a problem with anger. I just let people know how I feel. I'm in touch with my emotions, right? I don't have a problem with gossip. I just want people to be informed so that, you know, they can know what's going on and do the right thing. I don't have a problem with people pleasing. I'm just trying to be considerate. Um, Or I don't have a problem with lust or pornography. I could always look away whenever I want to. That time just hasn't arrived yet, Um, right? These are just fig leaves. We're covering our iniquity, But we know what's underneath, and until it's really dealt with, we won't have joy. So we don't confess because we're moralistic, or at least we have moralistic tendencies. But second, a lot of us, we don't confess because we think, God can just forgive me. I don't need to confess, right? Usually what's behind this false belief, what's behind this is the false belief that God, quote unquote, just forgives. Um, But every single one of us knows forgiveness doesn't work that way. I mean, try it. If you struggle with forgiving yourself, just do it. Just forgive yourself. Right? I mean, why wouldn't you have done it already? Right? We want to forgive ourselves, so why why don't we just do it? Or if somebody hurts you, somebody's broken trust, treated you crookedly, violated you, let you down... We know that when there is real hurt, we can't just forgive. Our hearts cry out for justice. Our hearts cry out for the debt to be paid. We don't forgive others because we know a wrong has been done. And we don't forgive ourselves because we know something's wrong with us. Now, why should it be different with God? 
It's not. And this is the dilemma we inhabit. If God is a God of justice, then he can't just forgive. Right? And let me remind you, if God is not a God of justice, then what hope is there for the world? Right? Because every one of us knows in our heart that the world needs to be made right. We all know that the world is full of crookedness, twistedness, betrayal, violence, and death, and only an infinite God of perfect justice could possibly make things right. But only a God of justice can look at our sin and transgression and say, you failed to love God and your neighbor. And that's what really terrifies us. Because we know that we need to be covered. And if you don't know the gospel, then you must deny God's holiness and justice, because otherwise, what hope is there for you? But once you deny God's holiness, once you deny God's justice, that is not a God worthy of worship or worthy of rejoicing. Right? If you, could, if you deny God's justice, you will not enjoy God and you will not have joy in following him because a God that just forgives doesn't transform you. Look, when we forgive in this world, we know that it costs us something. It hurts to forgive. Right? So, for example, if somebody breaks something of yours, right, then forgiveness means you don't make them pay. You bear the cost. Either your thing is broken or you pony up the money to fix it. It's on you. And when we're hurt, say emotionally, right, a parent that diminished us with their words or a spouse that just drips, 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 unfair criticism or false accusations, forgiveness means we bear the emotional cost. I should stop at this point because when we touch nerves, sometimes, you know, examples like this, people can say, look, what you're asking is unhealthy. Forgiveness, some things, people, you can't ask people to forgive them. Right? You might have a family member who has made hundreds of disastrous decisions and your family is in shambles as a result. Right? How could you forgive that? Do you remember a few years ago there was a shooting in an Amish community? In 2006, a shooter killed 10 young girls in a school, and then he shot himself. And the whole country was shocked by the Amish response. They went to the shooter's family, and they forgave the shooter, and they comforted them for the pain and the sorrow of their loss. Right? A tragic, horrible murder, and they immediately forgave and reached out to the shooter's family, and nearly half the Amish community attended the shooter's funeral. And not like to be ironic, okay? Right? The Amish, I don't think they do irony. Um, right? One father said, forgiveness means giving up your right to revenge. That's a cost. So a few years later, some sociologists wrote a book called Amish Grace. And in the book, they wrote that our society is not capable of producing this sort of thing anymore. Forgiveness is an act of self-renunciation, self-sacrifice for the good of others, for the good of the community. Right? It means I could pay back, but I'm not going to. Right? Self-renunciation, self-sacrifice. But our culture is consumeristic, individualistic. It teaches self-actualization. It teaches self-assertion. And it teaches you must never do self-renunciation. Never do that. But we look at examples like the Amish, and it's inspiring because it costs something. 
We see the amazing, inspiring example of the Amish, but we as a culture are incapable of doing that. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, look, asking me to forgive, this is really, really difficult. Fortunately for you, uh, that works for this sermon, because this sermon isn't about getting you to forgive. That's another sermon, but the Bible tells you to do that too. But you know what? The harder it is for you to think about forgiving others, that's what God does for you. The harder it is for you to imagine forgiving certain things, great. So much more you can appreciate what God has done for you. Forgiveness costs something. If God just forgives, then what would it cost God to love you? That kind of love does not transform you because what did it cost God to give you that love? But the gospel is that it cost God everything to love us and that God paid an infinite price to forgive us. So whether you fail to confess because you're moralistic or you fail to confess because you think God can just forgive, we know that we need to be covered. So how can we do it? Well, verse 10 contrasts two types of people. So first, there are the wicked, and they have many sorrows. And second, there are, well, you might think, okay, there was the wicked, and now there's going to be the good, or the wicked and the morally righteous. But no, the second group is the one who trusts in the Lord. So the wicked and the one who trusts. And instead of sorrows, he's surrounded by steadfast love. And steadfast love or loving kindness, different translations have different, but that is a translation of a very important Hebrew word, chesed, which means covenant faithfulness. Okay? And covenant covenant faithfulness means God's commitment to keep his promises. Steadfast love is God's commitment to keep his promises. And one of those promises is to forgive the sin of his people. God promises to do that. And because those who trust in the Lord are surrounded by covenant faithfulness, surrounded by steadfast love, they are glad and rejoice. You might say, okay, but how? How does God keep his promise? If we go all the way back to the very beginning, Adam and Eve disobey God, eat the fruit, right? rebel against God's authority, and they cover themselves with fig leaves. And then God promises one day to send an offspring who will bruise the head of the serpent. But God does something else. Genesis 3.21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God looked at their own inadequate coverings and providing a co- and provided a covering that would do the job. God clothed them with skins, not fig leaves. But that means some animal died so that an Adam and Eve could be covered. This is the first time death appears in scripture. They could be covered Because an animal bore the cost of their nakedness. A sacrifice. A substitution. The entire Old Testament fills out the details of how God would cover our sin. How God would forgive us. And in the prophets, God promised that one day he would send a suffering servant who would be faithful to all God's promises. He would bear our iniquities and they would crush him. 
Isaiah 53 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And actually, if you go back to verse 10 in our psalm, it says, Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. It's singular. Because we're not ultimately saved because of the strength of our trust, but because of the strength of Jesus' trust and faithfulness for us. It's not us, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who trusted in the Lord. Jesus was trustworthy, faithful to obey God in everything, and faithful to fulfill the law and God's promises so that our transgressions, our faithlessness, could be forgiven. Jesus bore the iniquities of our sin and it crushed him so that we don't need to bear the iniquity of our sins and be crushed. Jesus was the truly human one who did not fail to perfectly love God and love others so that our sins could be atoned for and covered. I don't care what you've done. You have not done something worse than literally nailing the Son of God to a cross and killing him. And while Jesus was up there, what did he say? All right, this is cross the line. No, he said, Father, forgive them. Even this, you have not done worse than that. Our, your sin has killed him, but killing the Messiah is not unforgivable. Jesus lived the life we should have lived, and he died the death we should have died so that we can have the blessing and the joy that rightfully belongs to Jesus, so that we can be surrounded by God's steadfast love. That's the gospel. That's why God can forgive, because Jesus paid everything to pay our debt. On the cross, Jesus received the infinite judgment of God against all the crookedness and rebellion on this earth so that we can receive the infinite love and joy of the Father. It costs God something to love us. But God paid that cost willingly. God's delight was to give himself so that he could have you, so that he could cover you, so that you could have joy. God's forgiveness is infinitely costly to him, but free to us. The gospel is the reason that we can have forgiveness and a guarantee that when we confess, we'll be forgiven. We can delight in God's holiness and justice and delight in God's love and mercy. First John says, if we confess our sins, then God is faithful and just to forgive us. He doesn't forgive us instead of being just. Right? God is faithful and just to forgive us. How can that be? Because Jesus paid it. Justice means you don't pay a debt twice. God's infinite justice and mercy meet at the cross. So you can always know that when you confess, you will receive forgiveness because your debt has already been paid. And God will never ask for that payment again. So if you're a Christian, if you're struggling to forgive yourself or to forgive others, first, are you joyfully bringing your sin before God and joyfully receiving his forgiveness? Or are you trusting in your own moral goodness instead of trusting in God's faithfulness? Or are you rejecting God's holiness because you're afraid that you can't stand before a holy God? Hold fast to what it means to be a Christian. You belong to Jesus, the faithful one, and you are clothed in Christ. And that means steadfast love surrounds you. 
Let that steadfast love transform you and overflow to others. All right. Second, if you feel like you're lacking joy in your life, verse nine says, don't be like a horse or mule without understanding. Right. So a horse doesn't know where it's going and it makes sure, right, you, you, the rider needs to prick and prod it to keep it on the path. Okay. So if you're missing the mark, right, that's what sin is. God's going to make sure you know about it. God's hand will be heavy upon you and your bones will waste away until you acknowledge your sin to God. So embrace the discipline of confession and embrace the pursuit of holiness. And don't be like a horse and mule. Use your brain. Right. Know where God wants you to go and go there. And then your Christian walk will be full of joy. If you aren't a Christian or if you aren't sure what you believe, I want you to consider this. No other religion or worldview promises forgiveness like this. No other religion has a savior on a cross saying, forgive the ones who are killing me right now. But the gospel, every other religion, every other religion says, first you obey and then your loved are forgiven. But the gospel says, first you're forgiven, first you're loved, and then you obey in joyful response. The order is everything. If you're longing for forgiveness, you don't need to do anything except trust in Jesus. Trust that Jesus is the only one who can save you and trust that he did. And then spend the rest of your life following him, seeking and enjoying him. And as you learn what it means to live as a redeemed and restored human, and you will have joy. So do that today. Let's pray. God, we thank you that steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. God, I pray that you would give us power um, to break the chains that hold us back from trusting in you completely. God, may we um, have no fear of what we see inside of us. Bring that to you, knowing that you, by your Holy Spirit, have the power to cleanse it and to break the power over us and to pronounce your forgiveness over us. God, we long for more of you in our lives, and we know that forgiveness is the entryway into having more of the infinite Creator God in our lives. God, be at work in us this week. May we not forget um, that confession and forgiveness is a joy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.